welcome to COPCOM, a new podcast series covering all things court protection and community care, hosted by me, Matthew Wyard. Each episode will aim to cover two to three topics on things such as current awareness, the latest jurisprudence from the courts, and pointers for practice. We'll also have discussions and debates with interesting guests working in the field. Now, don't worry, these aren't going to be lengthy programmes. I don't want to take up much of the listeners' valuable time. Each episode will, however, be long enough to give enough detail on the developments discussed, but short enough that it can be listened to over breakfast, on your commute, or perhaps, if time allows, over lunch. In this episode, we'll be discussing three areas of interest for practitioners. Very briefly, we'll cover forthcoming changes that are being made to the Court of Protection rules, changes that come into force on the 1st of January 2023. Sticking with the 1st of January 2023, secondly, we'll look at the upfront notification process that started off as a pilot scheme and now comes into force in January 2023 to be the latest way in which property and affairs deputyship applications will need to be made. Lastly then, we'll look at something that's particularly exciting from my perspective, the powers of attorney bill, and we'll aim to answer two questions, namely what the bill is and what it does. That said, and without much further ado, let's take a look at our first topic, changes to the Court of Protection Rules. Topic 1. Changes to the Court of Protection Rules For anyone that doesn't know, the Court of Protection Rules get amended on the 1st of January 2023. For anyone who's new to the Court of Protection arena, the Court of Protection Rules are the Court of Protection equivalent to what you might be more familiar with in the Family Procedure Rules or the Civil Procedure Rules. Now, The amendments coming into force on the 1st of January are brought about by the inspiringly named statutory instrument, the Court of Protection Amendment Rules 2022. It is available on Westlaw, uh, as well as the government legislation website, and for anyone who wants to find the instrument on Westlaw, the best way to do so is to use the SI number, which is 2022 forward slash 1192. Helpfully, there's a short explanatory memorandum to the instrument that provides some clarity on the changes to be made, but ultimately there are three key changes made to the Court of Protection Rules by the instrument. The first change brought about will be a very welcome one, in my opinion. It's a change to Part 6 of the rules concerning the service of documentation in Court of Protection proceedings. What, you might ask, is wrong with Part 6 of the COP rules as it currently stands? Well, the explanatory memorandum to the statutory instrument gives some insight into this. In particular, paragraph 7.3 to 7.4 of the explanatory memorandum say this. Although the supporting practice direction 6A refers to service by electronic means, court users have doubted that service by electronic means includes email and to sort specific directions from the court. This has led to unnecessary applications for directions. 7.4 
goes on to say, the committee recommended that minor amendments should be made to Rule 6.3 to make it clear that electronic service includes the use of email and that a direction from the court is not required. Uh, so there you have it. What appears to have been happening in practice is practitioners getting very worried about whether they can serve documents by email and requesting a specific direction from the court, thereby wasting both their time and the court's time in giving directions. How then, you ask, does the new change to the rules impact this? Well, it amends Rule 6.3 subsection 4 to make specific reference to Rule 6.3 subsection 6, and confusingly perhaps, also substitutes the current Rule 6.36 with new wording. Slightly arcane to be sent on a podcast when you haven't got the rules in front of you, so for the listener's benefit, the new Rule 6.34 will now read as follows. Where it appears to the court that there is a good reason to authorise service by a method other than those specified in paragraphs 2, 3 and 6, the court may direct that service is to be effected by that method. Rule 6.36 will now read, documents may be served by document exchange or electronic communication in accordance with the relevant practice direction. So, combining both of those, the new Rule 6.34 will allow electronic service in accordance with the relevant practice direction by default. What then does the relevant practice direction say, and which practice direction is indeed the relevant one. Well, the relevant practice direction is practice direction 6A, and as a reminder for anyone listening, practice direction 6A allows for service by way of email, where an email address is provided on an application form to the court, or in response to an application. Taken all together then, should abate any fears in the practitioner's mind that applications to the COP can be served by email, although it is of course worth checking that within the body of an application or in response to an application, an email address has been given by the firm or individual that you want to serve documentation on. So the change to part six of the COP rules is perhaps the most important change being brought about by the forthcoming changes to the rules. There are, however, two more. The second change is to Rule 9.1 of the COP rules. In effect, what it does is allow that the upfront notification process for property property and affairs deputyships, something we'll be discussing later in this podcast, to be followed. The third change is to Part 21 of the COP rules. For those in the know, Part 21 deals with contempt of court applications within the court of protection arena. It entirely replaces the old Part 21 of the COP rules with the new Part 21, the idea being to try and make Part 21 of the COP rules consistent with Part 81 of the Civil Procedure Rules. I'm not going to go through the new Part 21 in great detail. The takeaway point really is that if you're inclined to make a court contempt application in the Court of Protection, which certainly in my experience is extremely rare, then the prudent practitioner will want to ensure that they familiarise themselves with Part 21 before doing so. Those are the key changes that are going to be made to the COP rules coming into force on the 1st of January 2023. But there is another big 
change within the COP world that also comes into force in January 2023. Although hopefully for practitioners this perhaps won't be as surprising as the COP rule changes are. Topic 2. The upfront notification process. Now, the key change coming into force in January 2023 is the introduction of the upfront notification process for property and affairs deputyship applications to the Court of Protection. This is a process that some practitioners will be familiar with because it's been brought into force following a successful pilot scheme that was run from the summer of 2021. However, the takeaway is that from January 2023, it's no longer a pilot, it's a process that must be followed in relation to all new property and affairs deputyship applications being made. Happily for solicitors, there will be an online service to use that's available from the 2nd of January 2023 for just that purpose. Slightly later for personal applicants, uh, the online service will only become available for them from February 2023. So perhaps that's one benefit to being a solicitor in this circumstance is that you get early access to the online system. Big takeaway point is that from the 1st of February 2023, applications for property and affairs deputyships that don't follow the upfront notification process will be returned to the applicant. So it's extremely important that the process is followed. The key question then is, well, what is the new process? It's a process that some listeners may be familiar with if they've worked at solicitors firms that were part of the pilot scheme. Um, but for those that weren't part of the pilot scheme, you will be happy to know that the process is a simple one, albeit it is a marked change from what took place before. So what took place before? Well, as we all know, the solicitor or individual applicant, whoever was making the application for deputyship, <coughs> would complete a plethora of paper forms ranging from the Court of Protection or COP1 form, the COP1A or COP-B form, the COP3 and the various other COP forms accompanying a deputyship application, make sure they're all signed and completed properly, post them into the court, await follow-on information from the court, before serving and notifying individuals, including P, of the application that was being made. 99% of the time, with a fair wind behind you, you would be lucky there would be no response once individuals were notified of the deputyship application, and you would, within, hopefully, if you are lucky, a year, receive the completed deputyship order from the court new process is slightly different. Yes, you will still need to complete various forms. However, there will now be an additional form, in fact two additional forms, that need to be completed. They are the COP14 PA DEP and COP15 PA DEP. They are forms to be used for notification and acknowledgement of notification by individuals notified. The key difference, however, is rather than waiting uh, for the court, once you've sent in your deputyship application, to notify individuals, 
the relevant people must now be notified before the deputyship application is sent to the court. In fact, applicants must now notify three people who know the person affected by the application and gather their response in advance of submitting the deputyship application using the forms that I've just explained. Once notification has been given, the individual that's notified should return the form to the individual who notified them within 14 days. Happily, uh, the court has confirmed in a letter dated December 2022 that if no form is returned after 14 days of notification, the court will generally assume agreement of the order sought by the individual notified. Perhaps most important to remember is that the COP14 PA DEP and COP15 PA DEP forms need to be provided to the court alongside the application for deputyship. So alongside your COP1s, your COP3s, so on. Those are the main changes brought about by the upfront notification scheme. But are they positive changes? Well, my view is yes. There are two, hopefully, positive consequences of the new system. Firstly, the speeding up of the granting of deputyship applications. We all know that particularly at the moment the court is being particularly slow with these things. Um, that's not helped by the protracted application process and the additional notification periods and times that are required following the return of the forms from the court. In theory now, if the upfront notification process is used and no issues are raised, the court should, in theory, be in a position to issue the deputyship order sort within around six weeks of filing the application. That is, uh, obviously, as those practising will know, much, much quicker than the turnaround times currently being followed. The cynic in me thinks that perhaps um, six weeks is hopeful, uh, although fingers crossed that those times will in fact happen. The second big positive, in my view, um, is that everything is in theory going to be done online, which should hopefully make things quicker and more efficient from the applicant's process. Um, I'm not sure yet what provisions are in place for those who perhaps can't use the IT that would be required to make an online application, although no doubt the court has thought about that, uh, and one would assume will be issuing some kind of paper equivalent forms in due course. Uh, interestingly enough, the court service held a, uh, a workshop in the middle of December. If any listeners did go to that workshop uh, and have anything to contribute arising from that workshop then please do get in touch and we'll give you a shout out on the next podcast as well as provide the information to listeners so there you have it that's the upfront notification process that's coming into force in january 2023 as i've said any applications that are received after the 1st of february that don't follow that process will be returned to applicants so please make sure you follow it Topic three, the powers of attorney bill. My favourite topic of conversation recently 
over the Christmas period has been the powers of attorney bill. For those of you who aren't aware, the Conservative MP Stephen Metcalf introduced a private members bill to the House of Commons back in the summer of 2022, in which he noted the prevalence of dementia and an ageing population meant that powers of attorney documents are becoming increasingly important. And again, as those of you who practice in the area will know, Stephen Metcalf also noted that the process was beginning to become unnecessarily complicated. Um, I'm not so sure about beginning to become unnecessarily complicated as uh, having always been unnecessarily complicated, but perhaps I'm nitpicking. Now, the private member's bill, after its introduction to the House of Commons, was backed by the government, and the bill consequently was ordered to be printed following its first reading on the 15th of June 2022. For those of you who are interested, the bill completed its second reading on the 9th of December 2022, and at the time of recording uh, is currently on the Parliament website uh, as to be confirmed the date with which it will be moving to the committee stage. Uh, no doubt that will begin to take place in the early part of 2023. For anyone who wants to look at the bill itself, that can be found online on the Parliament website. It's not a long document, the entire file is nine pages long, and of actual substance there are around six pages alongside the bill. On the Parliament website is the explanatory note explaining in some depth the purpose of the bill and also dealing with the typical requirements such as impact assessments. Uh, if you have some time and you want to find out more about the bill uh, uh, alongside listening to this podcast, then please go onto the Parliament website and check out those resources. Going through the bill then, there are three sections and a schedule. Section one of the bill brings the schedule attached to the bill into force in theory, which amends Schedule 1 to the Mental Capacity Act 2005, and we'll come back to that uh, in a moment. Section 2 of the bill would amend Section 3 of the Powers of Attorney Act 1971. Section 3 of the Powers of Attorney Act is the section that explains and gives directions as to who can certify powers of attorney. At the moment, there are a variety of individuals allowed to certify powers of attorney, but the one notable exception to that is a chartered legal executive. Those of you who are chartered legal executives or who work in practices with chartered legal executives operating there will be pleased to know that Section 2, the amendment within it, would amend Section 3 of the Powers of Attorney Act to allow chartered legal executives to now certify a power of attorney. That can only be positive, in my view. Section 3 of the bill is the extent, commencement and short title provisions, which I won't go into. They're not particularly thrilling. The main meat of the bill is a schedule that, as I've already said, would, if the bill is passed as currently drafted be brought into force by section 1. The schedule amends schedule 1 of the Mental Capacity Act 2005, schedule 1 there being lasting power of attorney formalities um, and the, the, the contents really of schedule 1 to the 2005 Act. Well it gives details about the general requirements of making and registering powers of attorney. The main changes to be made 
to Schedule 1 should the bill be passed in its current form are as follows. The first key change is to paragraph 4 of Schedule 1 to the 2005 Act. At the moment, paragraph 4.1 and 4.2 has the effect that the donor of the power of attorney as well as the prospective attorneys can take steps to register the instrument with the public guardian. This will be amended. Paragraph 4.2 will be removed and paragraph 4.1a amended with the cumulative effects that it would restrict an application for registration of a power of attorney to just the donor i.e. in practice attorneys would no longer be able to apply for registration of the power of attorney instrument it must be or would need to be done by the donor themselves this inevitably is is in order to reduce fraud uh, it's something that's noted within the explanatory note to the bill itself that the aims of the amendments are to reduce fraud or abuses of process and power which this would do. Alongside that, that, paragraph 4 of the schedule to the bill would remove the requirement for the donor of the power of attorney to tell the named persons in the power of attorney that the instrument had been sent off for registration with the public guardian. If the bill is passed, the onus will then be on the public guardian himself to notify the named persons in the instrument. Interestingly, a new paragraph 4a would be inserted into Schedule 1 to the Mental Capacity Act, requiring the public guardian to take steps to ensure that any power of attorney received is executed if it's not fully executed when submitted to the public guardian. One key question that might be arising in your minds now is, well, if it's the case that only the donor can register the power of attorney, how is that going to be enforced? What's to stop an unwitting donor being tricked by their attorney and the attorney themselves, in fact, submitting a false power of attorney to the public guardian? Well, this is dealt with by paragraph 6 of the the schedule to the bill which allows for regulations to be made concerning how the public guardian will verify identification in relation to an application to register an instrument. So whilst we don't know what the contents of the regulations are we can see by the fact that regulations are going to be brought in at all that there will be some method presumably online for someone working at the office of the public guardian to verify that the individual who has sent off the instrument for registration is in fact the donor themselves and not as can be the case sometimes the attorney the other big change brought around by the bill is set out at paragraph 7 of the schedule to the bill and that proposes to change the objection process to the registration of a lasting power of attorney and really, on my reading of it, there are two, two fundamental changes. So, firstly, third parties not named on the instrument itself will be able to object to the registering of the LPA. However, the public guardian will still be able to register the instrument if the third party fails to provide evidence to support any concerns that are raised.
The second point, however, is that if the third party does provide evidence and the public guardian supports the concern raised, then the attorney or donor will have to apply to the Court of Protection for a direction requiring the public guardian to register the LPA. Those then are the key changes that will be brought about by the bill. Um, on an entirely separate note to the actual changes themselves, is what's interesting to me is that the bill was designed, if you read the explanatory notes, to enable modernisation of the process for creating powers of attorney and to provide a different process for paper or digital registration of the documents. Well, from my reading of the bill as currently drafted, it doesn't in fact provide for digital applications for registration at all. There is, as I explained earlier, by way of paragraph 6 in the proposed schedule, power for regulations to be created uh, in terms of verifying powers of attorney that are sought to be registered. So really, we'll have to wait and see what's in any regulations once the bill is passed uh, to see if, in fact, things are going to be able to be dealt with digitally uh, in an efficient fashion. That aside, the other big change, uh, big positive change in my view that's brought about is, as I've already explained, the allowance of the signing of a certificate by a chartered legal executive. That will be a welcome amendment in light of the ongoing development in the legal services market. There are, frankly, more legal executives um, practising now than there ever has been, and it's only right and proper that they uh, are allowed to sign off certificates in the same way that solicitors are. So that's it. Episode 1 of Copcom complete. Thank you for listening. I hope it was an interesting listen and that you'll continue to keep an eye out for the next episode. Uh, even better, subscribe so that the podcast goes straight into your inbox. Um, if you've enjoyed the podcast and you have anything in particular that you would like uh, to be covered in upcoming or future episodes, then please do drop me an email and let me know. Matthew.wired at 3pb.co.uk is my email address, um, and I'm happy to be contacted at any time. Lastly then, all that's left for me to say is to once again thank you for listening and to wish you a happy new year. Thank you very much and see you next time. Thank you.